We're study, starting a new study through the book of Acts this morning. Acts, of course, was written by a man named Luke. Uh, Luke was a doctor. He was a physician by training and by trade. Um, he was an accompaniment. He also accompanied uh, the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. Um, he wrote not only the book of Acts, but as we know, also the gospel that is uh, covered by his name, the gospel of Luke. Um, Acts really is the second part of a two-volume set by Luke. And the first is the gospel of Luke, and then the book of Acts. The gospel of Luke, as we know, starts with the birth of Christ, covers his earthly ministry, ends with his death and resurrection and ascension, and then the book of Acts picks up from there and continues with the story of the early church as they expand the kingdom and take the gospel throughout the known world. And the handoff between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts really takes place in the passage of scripture that we'll look at this morning in the first 11 verses, where we see Jesus hand the baton of his mission over to the apostles. We'll see that the ministry of Jesus Christ, his message and his mission that he began during his earthly ministry doesn't stop at Calvary. And it doesn't stop with his resurrection. And it doesn't even stop with his ascension back to the Father, but it continues. It continues through the apostles in the first century and we will see that it continues through the church in the 21st century. And that's where we'll end up this morning. Having seen the baton handed from Jesus to the apostles, we will see that he's now handed the, apostle, the, the baton to us. And it's now up to us to continue this ministry to the world that God has sent us to. So let's read Acts chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, continuing through verse 11. This is God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege it is this morning to gather with the saints and worship you. For we know that you deserve every ounce of our worship. And so now, Father, we turn to your word in that same spirit of worship, humbly asking that you would speak to us. Father, we're so thankful for this book. We are so thankful that you have preserved it throughout the ages so that we can know that what we hold in our hands is your very breath. And so now speak to our spirit, speak to our soul. Father, I pray that you would speak to your church, those whom you have saved by grace through faith in your son Jesus Christ alone, that you might inspire us and equip us and challenge us to take up this baton. And Father, we pray that you would move in the hearts and lives of those who may be in this room who have never professed faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope. Maybe they've been in church all their lives. Maybe they've been around Christians all their life. Maybe their life even looks like one, but they have never come to the faith of repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would not let them leave through these doors this morning without confronting them with the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel Father, would you convict of sin and grant repentance and faith unto Jesus Christ. Father, glorify yourself this morning through your word to your people, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts, it is an incredible, amazing book of what God did after Jesus ascended back to the Father. And what we have in these opening verses is just that. It is the passing of the baton from Jesus to the apostles. And then in the remainder of the book, we see them fleshing this out. There are two sections in our passage this morning. First, in the first five verses, we will see a mission that began. And it began with Jesus. And then in the remaining six verses, we will see a mission that continues as that baton gets handed to the apostles and they begin to accept that mission. As we put these two sections together, Jesus hands the baton and they take it, but it doesn't end with them. And what we will see is that baton is now in our hands and that mission continues through the church in the 21st century. So let's look first at a mission that began there in those first five verses. Luke begins by referring to his first volume. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's a reference to Luke's gospel. And he writes Luke's gospel to this very same person, this Theophilus. We don't know a whole lot about Theophilus. The scriptures don't tell us much about him commentators suggest that perhaps he was a very wealthy individual, maybe a very influential individual there in Jerusalem or in Palestine. Perhaps even he helped to underwrite part of Luke's undertaking in writing the gospel account and the book of Acts. But we really don't know. All we know is that he is the person to whom Luke addressed both his gospel account and this book as well. But he says, in that first volume of my two-volume set, I dealt with what Jesus began to do and teach. And so Luke's gospel was about just that, a mission that began with Jesus. It covered his birth, his early years as he grew up, 
his baptism, his preaching ministry in and around Galilee. It covered his, his miraculous um, uh, miracles that he performed and, and healings to give evidence to the fact that he was the Son of God. And then that gospel account concluded, of course, with Jesus' death on a cross, his resurrection three days later, and his ascension back to the Father. And as he says here in verse 2 of Acts 1, in that first volume, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then verse 2 says, until the day that he was taken up. And so then Luke begins there with verse 2 to, to narrow the focus of what he's going to talk about to that which took place from Jesus after his resurrection in the days leading up to his ascension back to the Father. What happened during those 40 days? He says that he was taken up to heaven only after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 2. And so he, he met with the, with the disciples and he taught them. He, he taught them the scriptures. He taught them the commands of scripture during this time. And one of those commands, and one could argue the most important and the most, the most prevalent command that he left with them is the one that we will cover in the second section of this morning's passage in verse 8. But his teaching during this time was focused on showing them that he was the fulfillment of God's promise to bring a Messiah who would redeem his people back to himself, who would rescue sinners from deserved judgment by offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross. Listen to how Luke describes this time of Jesus' teaching during these 40 days in his gospel account from Luke 24. Luke writes this, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, in other words, before the crucifixion, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Friend, can you imagine what it would have been like to have been a part of that Bible study with those apostles during those 40 days? Imagine what a Bible study that was. To have Jesus himself, as he says, he opened their mind to understand the scriptures to such an extent that, that they realized that everything that was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were fulfilled in him. What a Bible study. And church Every time we open up the New Testament, we get to be a part of that Bible study. Because those apostles who were a part of that Bible study in those 40 days have passed those things along to us in their writings. And if the apostles 
needed to be taught from the scriptures in order to be prepared to take the baton from Jesus and engage in this mission, then church, we too, how much more do we need to be taught from the scriptures if we are to be prepared to take the baton from them and run our race and engage in this mission as well? As we will see in a moment, this is a spirit-empowered mission. But friend, it is also a word-empowered mission. And we need both. We need the spirit and we need the word if we are to faithfully engage in this mission. So we taught them from the scriptures. Next, in this teaching, in these 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus also sought to convince them of his resurrection. Look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Paul will later tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 in the opening verses of that chapter that not only did Jesus appear to the apostles, but he also appeared to 500 brothers at one time. Jesus was intent on fully convincing his early disciples that he had indeed risen bodily from the grave. As if in order to fulfill the mission that he was giving them, in order for them to take the baton and run this race, they needed to be convinced that he really was alive. And if they weren't convinced, if they were in in some sense doubting that resurrection... How could they possibly be compelled to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations? No, they needed to be convinced. And Jesus wanted them to be confident that he, their Savior, their King, was in fact alive and alive forevermore. Friend, church, if we are to be compelled to take the baton and run the race, to take the gospel to the nations, then we too need to not just have head knowledge, but heart knowledge. We need to be fully convinced and overwhelmed and in awe of the fact that Jesus Christ is alive today. We do not worship a dead carpenter, but a resurrected king who defeated sin and death forever for those who would trust in him. Jesus is alive The tomb is empty, and that's not a truth that should be relegated to one Sunday a year, but every day of every year. May the truth of his miraculous bodily resurrection and consequently his defeat of sin and death forever be like lighter fluid on the flame of our passion to live for God's glory and take his good news to the lost. So during these 40 days, between the resurrection and the ascension, he taught them from the scriptures. He convinced them that he is alive and he had resurrected from the dead. And then thirdly, he had them wait. He had them wait for the Spirit. Look at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to leave from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So why did Jesus have the apostles wait there in Jerusalem, and what should that mean for us today? We see first that the coming of the Holy Spirit was a promise. It was a promise of the Father, as he says there. 
which means that it was prophesied about by, by the Father. The Father prophesied about this, talked about this through his prophets, that he was going to send one who would redeem his people. Listen to the prophet Isaiah as he speaks forth God's words about this time in Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The prophet Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 36, God's words as he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In part, these prophecies were fulfilled at Pentecost, as we'll see in chapter 2 in just a couple of weeks. As God poured out his spirit, the Holy Spirit, on his people. Now we should note that in the timeline of redemptive history, this was a one-time unique event, not an event that is to be repeated, and so we shouldn't seek for it to be repeated. Now, we can and should pray for revival among God's people, for God's people to be revived, to, to mission and to live for God's glory, absolutely. But we should not seek a repetition of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish feast. It was the, the Feast of Weeks, or literally the Feast of 50. It's the word Pentecost means. It means 50. It's the 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. And the Israelites waited for the time of harvest. And so Pentecost was about a time of waiting, but church, we don't wait for the Holy Spirit today. Pentecost has already occurred, and now the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the believer in Jesus Christ from the very moment of salvation. As Paul writes to his friend Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gives us new life in Christ and indwells us at the very moment of placing our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is why Paul exhorts the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom is in you, whom you have from God? For you are not your own. Paul didn't tell them to wait in Corinth until the Holy Spirit came. No, the Holy Spirit had already come. And so he was indwelling the believers in Corinth already. Here in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, we see Jesus uh, referring to the baptism of John. He says, He baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, and again, this is a one-time event. We don't we don't wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit today. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized, past tense, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. And by the way, the Apostle Paul, who wrote that, 
was not at Pentecost, and he certainly wasn't a believer at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. No, he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit later when God saved him on the road to Damascus as Jesus showed up in a blinding light. When he placed his faith in Jesus, he got the Holy Spirit. And church, if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, came to dwell in you at that very moment. And so we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and we have all of the Holy Spirit that we're ever going to get, and we don't need to seek to try to get more of it in some kind of second event. And yet, we can be indwelt with the Holy Spirit and still not fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a lot more about being empowered by the Holy Spirit when we get to chapter 2. And in fact, we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit throughout our entire study of the book of Acts. Because this could very well be titled not just the Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. As we see the Spirit move in and through His people to accomplish amazing th things all throughout the first century. But for now, we simply need to see that, that Jesus, Jesus had them wait. Passed them a baton, but he didn't shoot the gun yet. He didn't start the race. He had them wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. Before they took the baton and started on their mission. And while we today, who are believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Christ today, we don't have to wait on the Holy Spirit, we do need to make sure that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because as we take this baton subsequently from the apostles and seek to take the gospel to the nations, friend, that is not a mission that we can do in our own power, as we'll see in just a moment. So this is the mission that Jesus began. And he's beginning to hand this baton off to the apostles. And that handoff takes place in the next few verses, which narrow the focus even more to the last few moments, right up until Jesus ascends back to the Father. So a mission now continues. And the first thing that we notice here is that there was apparently a misunderstanding on the part of the apostles as to what the mission was. They misunderstood the mission. Look at verse 6. Together they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I think sometimes it's very easy for us to look back on stories like this and wonder, how could the apostles be so boneheaded, right? Of course, this is not the time that God will restore the kingdom to Israel. But they, they were falling victim to the myopic view that God was sending a Messiah to, to redeem a people politically and nationally, that he would restore the kingdom physically, not spiritually. They got distracted by a competing mission. And as a result, they misunderstood Jesus' mission. But Jesus informs them in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, paraphrasing, mind your own business. Right? How the Father is going to restore Israel and when the Father is going to restore Israel and what that looks like is nanya. Right? But what is your business is the mission. 
which he reminds them of in the next verse. But before we get to that verse, I think we should pause to perhaps admit to ourselves that it's very easy for us to also fall victim to competing missions and consequently misunderstand or worse, hijack or abandon Jesus' mission. The mission of the church is not to build a bigger church. The the mission that we have been given is not to have greater influence in our community. Our mission is, is not to have the best program ministries on the block so that we can attract more people. The the mission is not to put on the best show. The mission is not even to learn the most about the Bible. The mission is not even to grow the church. Those are all good things. There There aren't bad things. But they're not the mission. The mission is to take the gospel to the nations and make disciples of all nations and in so doing, glorify God. So we too can be easily distracted by competing missions around us and lose sight of the mission, the baton that's been handed to us. And so Jesus gives them the mission. We we need crystal clear clarity on the mission. And so Jesus gives it in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The mission is clear, and the mission is simple. Be witnesses of Jesus. Be my witnesses. Be witnesses of what you have seen and heard. Be witnesses of my message, my mission, my ministry, and take that to the ends of the earth. Be witnesses of me here, there, and everywhere. Now, in verse 8, I think we see four characteristics of this mission that are important for us to highlight. First, we see the assignment of the mission. Three times there in verse 8, we see the word you. And all three times, it is the second person plural pronoun you, which for those of us in the South is y'all, right? But y'all will be my witnesses, in, but, but, but y'all will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon y'all, and y'all will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The mission is not given primarily to individuals. It is given primarily to a community of believers. The y'all in this verse is the apostles. But clearly they understood that this assignment was not meant just for them, but also for that community of disciples that was back in Jerusalem. And when they got back there and waited for the Spirit to come, They shared it with them. This is our mission. And we'll see in next week's passage, there's about 120 of them. And that small little community of uh, of believers, the mission was meant for them as well. And friend, that was the first little fledgling church in the history of the world there in Jerusalem. And so this mission is not... Is not given only to pastors and elders and preachers, but to every believer who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from judgment. Given to all of us. This is a mission that's been assigned to you, to y'all. That's not to say that we don't have 
individual responsibility to flesh out this mission in our own individual lives. Of course we do. But that doesn't mean that I engage in this mission individually. Rather, I engage and I accept this mission corporately. That my brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I am in covenant with, they share in my individual responsibility and I share in their individual responsibility. This mission has been assigned to to us as a community of believers. The second characteristic of this mission that Luke addresses quite clearly in verse 8 is the power for the mission. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so as we mentioned earlier, Jesus had them wait in Jerusalem until that power came, until Pentecost, until the Holy Spirit came on them in power so that they would be indwelt with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He didn't want them to start out in this mission in their own power. And neither should we. Friend, can you imagine, can you imagine, Christian, Anything as maddening or exasperating or as impossibly frustrating as trying to convince an unbeliever of the truth of the gospel without the power of God. It's like beating the air or swimming in mud. We'll put a lot of effort into it, but we won't get very far. Church, we need to be fueled and empowered by the Spirit's power. We, we can have a great gospel presentation. We can have all the answers to the apologetics questions, and that's good. But friend, if we, don't have, if we don't have the Spirit of God on us as witnesses, if the Spirit of God is not at work in that exercise, then we are wasting our time. Wasting our time. Or worse, we're going to manipulate a false conversion. We need to be empowered by the spirit if we're to be faithful in this mission we need the spirit's power for boldness and courage we need the spirit's power for knowledge for the words to say as luke himself writes in luke 12 uh, there in verses 11 and 12 of luke 12 jesus told his disciples when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or even what you should say don't be anxious about that why he says in verse 12 for the holy spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say so give us the words church John records Jesus saying in John 14, 6, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How can we hope to set out in this task without the Spirit of God as our strength? But most of all, not just for boldness and courage and knowledge and what to say, We are absolutely dependent on the Spirit's power to work on the hearts of the unbeliever, to bring about conviction of sin, and to grant repentance unto faith in Jesus Christ. Friend, that is something it is absolutely impossible for us to do, and we shouldn't even try. That is the Spirit's work. We are absolutely dependent on the Spirit. And so, church, we need to pray We need to pray for the Spirit's power to move us to witness and to add His power to our witness. 
May we be a church that is not only faithful to be his witnesses, but is faithful to pray that God would add his power to that exercise so that we would see hearts and lives and eternal destinies change for his glory. The third characteristic of this mission that we see in verse 8 is the sacrifice that is involved in taking part in this mission. He says, you will be my witnesses. The Greek word for witness there is the Greek word martus, and it is, it is the root word from, from, for our English word martyr. Those believers in Jesus Christ who would later, and we'll cover some of it in the book of Acts, who would later give their lives in service of Jesus Christ came to be known as the martyrs, the witnesses. And so this would have been a reminder to the early disciples that the gospel message was countercultural. The gospel was offensive. It offended those who already thought that they were righteous because it told them that they were not. It offended those who worshipped other gods because it told them that Jesus was the only way. And this is a reminder to us that the message of the gospel, friend, it's still countercultural. And it is still very offensive to the secular mindset today. And if you and I are faithful to proclaim this offensive message, we shouldn't be respond, surprised when they respond negatively to both us and our message. We should expect ridicule. We should expect animosity. And we shouldn't be surprised even at violence. For to be a witness of Jesus Christ is to be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. And then he gives us the fourth characteristic of this mission to be witnesses for Christ in verse 8, and that is the aim of the mission. He says, you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And friend, this is not a new aim for this mission. This has been God's mission from the very beginning. This has been his mission from the time of Abraham back in Genesis 12. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's the aim of the mission that we find in the Great Commandment, Great Commission in Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations. God redeemed a chosen people, Israel, through whom he would bring his son into the world with the aim of redeeming his children from among all the people groups on the face of the earth. And of course, we see the beautiful fulfillment of the aim of this mission in that Revelation 7 picture of the throne room of God in the final days as we see the Father on the throne and the Lamb around the throne and there is a people gathered there a great multitude bowing before the throne and before the Lamb, a people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. The apostles knew that they were accepting a mission whose aim was not just the streets of Jerusalem. As, as death-defying and dangerous as that was going to be, it was going to start there but it wasn't going to end there. The aim of this mission spread out from Jerusalem 
to the surrounding region of Judea and then into the neighboring but hated enemy territory of Samaria. But even that was not the extent of the aim of this mission. Jesus meant for them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that framework really provides a nice framework for the entire book of Acts. As we'll see as we make our way through this, after the Holy Spirit comes to them as they wait in Jerusalem, Peter stands up on Pentecost, at Pentecost, and he preaches a bold gospel to the people on the streets of Jerusalem, and thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ. The early Christians began to walk out their faith boldly in in Jerusalem, and day by day, more people were coming to faith, and then persecution starts, and one of their own, a deacon named Stephen, gets murdered because of his faith in Jesus. And then great persecution breaks out as a result of that, and then they are spread out. They flee. The Christians flee. And where do they flee? Judea, Samaria, and even to Antioch. The first seven chapters of the book of Acts really are going to focus the fulfillment of this mission in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, roughly, are going to see the shift in the focus of this fulfillment of this mission onto Judea and, and Samaria in places like Caesarea and Damascus. And then chapters 13 through the end of the book, we will see the mission focus its shift to places like Antioch and Tarsus and Lystra and Derby and Iconium all throughout modern-day southern Turkey. And then it's going to cross over the, the sea into Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, and we'll see the gospel penetrate cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth. And then it's going to cross over another part of the sea and make its way even to Rome. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But what we won't see in the book of Acts is the early disciples make their way to Western Europe. We won't see the gospel penetrate Southeast Asia. We won't see it come to America. There's no mention here of Indonesia or Sub-Saharan Africa or Decula, Georgia or Buford, Georgia or Boston or Jefferson, Georgia or Houston, or Flowery Branch, or Winder. And why? Because the baton that was handed to the apostles, church has now been handed to us. See, we're on a relay team. And these brothers and sisters are part of our team. They they ran the, the, the opening leg, the first leg of the race. And I don't know if we run the the last leg. I don't know if we're the anchor leg or not. But we've got a leg of this race to run. The baton has been passed to us. Church, we're holding the baton in our hands this very moment. The question is, what's going to happen during our leg of the race? 
the apostles were handed the baton, and, and quite honestly, at first, they were a bit paralyzed as to what to do. As Dr. Luke records in the closing verses of this morning's passage, in verses 9 through 11, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They stood paralyzed as to what to do next. And I suppose that's understandable because their Savior, their King that they had walked with for three years was now leaving. He was going up in a cloud. He was going to be leaving them. But the angels startle them back to reality and say, in essence, stop, stop looking up. Get going. I know Jesus is leaving, but he's coming back. And he's given you a job. And he's put a baton in your hand and the, and the gun has gone off and the race has started and you're on the track and you're in your lane. Get running. Get running. Church, our leg of the race is already underway. Our mission is clear. It's the same one they got. Be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Be my witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be my witnesses. Our Lord intends for us to take this gospel to our neighbors, our, our co-workers, our community around us. But he also intends for that, that message to be extended beyond our community to the surrounding regions around us. Through the church and through our partnerships in places like downtown Atlanta and Boston. But he intends for it to go much further than that. The aim of the mission includes those on the other side of the globe to people groups that currently have no access to the gospel. What we'll see in this book of Acts over the next year or so are snapshots of the church as it runs its race well. But we'll be reminded every step of the way that the baton that they ran with is now in our hands. The mission has now been assigned to us, church. Let us not be distracted by competing missions. Let us not attempt for a moment to fulfill this mission in our own power, but to ensure that we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And let us be willing, church, to make any and every sacrifice that is required for us in order to take this gospel to our Jerusalem and the Judea and Samaria around us and yes, even to the ends of the earth. May we link arms with one another and run this race together for his glory. And if you're here this morning, and if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for rescue from certain and deserved judgment, I want you to know that you're included in the aim of our mission here. The aim of our mission as a church includes you. You're right there in the target. And we want to love you enough 
to tell you that there is a God who made you for his own glory, not your own glory. But you can't give him that glory because you are irreparably stained with your sin and your rebellion against this God. And no amount of cleaning your life up is going to get rid of that stain. The only thing that will remove that stain is the blood of Christ. Turning away from your sin and your self-rule and turning to Christ and his rule over you. Trusting in Christ, his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf as your only hope for rescue. Then that stain is washed away. And everything that keeps you from being reconciled to a holy God has been removed. And now you can glorify him. And now you too, with us, can take this baton. And live for his glory by making disciples of all nations. Church, I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about it. You've got the baton in your hand. We have the baton in our hands. How will you be a witness for Jesus Christ in your life? What will being a witness for Jesus Christ look like in your life this week? What kind of witness will you be for Jesus Christ? Let's take up that baton and the power of the Holy Spirit and run our race. Let's pray.